So like I told you all earlier, um, my message at 9 o'clock last night was going to be out of Revelation. And it was entitled Philadelphia. But uh, we were getting emails about people being sick and about, and I've been, and while Crystal and I are having couch time watching TV, I always have my phone open and I'm doing one of two things. I'm either, well, one of three things. I'm either answering an email, playing a game, or I'm on Twitter following the news. And um, last night I happened to be on Twitter and I was following all the stuff that was happening in Afghanistan. And I just told Crystal, I said, I think I'm going to change the sermon tomorrow. I think we need just a dose of how good God is. But I think we need a reality check on that as well. And so I called Christy real quick and just let her know in case she wanted to make some adjustments to the service, the song service. And here we are. So this morning's passage, this morning's message is a little bit different. Um, and uh, typically I do a very expository message where I take a passage and I really break it down. Uh, this morning is not so much about that. It's a little bit more topical. Um, but uh, uh, forgive me for that this morning. I thought it was most appropriate. So I'm going to pray, and then um, I'm actually going to read a passage here, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move right into this. So our focal passage this morning is from Psalm 100. It's five verses, and it says, "Make a joy," and it says, "A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing." Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His people. We are His, we are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving, and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him, bless His name, for the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. And we ask You to be with us this morning with this tender subject, Lord, and many of us have tender hearts this morning. We have hearts that are weighed down by grief for lost loved ones, illness, the state of our nation, um, the state of the world, and uh, we're trying to make heads or tails of it, Lord, and so help us do that this morning. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So the message is entitled, God is Good all the time, and many of you all probably grew up saying that very phrase, where the pastor would say, God is good, and you all would say, all the time. and then the pastor would say, all the time, and you would say, God is good. God is good. So, we're very traditional Southern Baptist right there. Very good. Well, that's the title of this passage, and I believe it, and it's 100% true. But I want to explore that a little bit based upon what we're experiencing right now, and I think it's a good gut check. I think it's a good heart check sometimes to ask hard questions. And so the subtitle of this sermon is this, When Making a Joyful Noise is Hard. It dawned on me this morning as I was kind of th getting ready and thinking about the message that there is a group of people, there is a group of people who never question the goodness of God. They never question the goodness of God. And that group of people are Christians who are with the Lord. Dead Christians. Christians who have passed, who are with Christ, 
never question the goodness of God. Isn't that astounding? Because even faithful Christians here on earth from time to time, it will run through the back of their mind, maybe not all the way up front, but maybe in the back of their mind, can God really be good? Can God be loved? Now, it may only rest there for a split second. When a family member passes away, when a family member's sick, when, when you're going through heartache and trouble, things of that nature, it may just enter your mind just for a moment. It may color your perception. And you may not think, well, God is not good. That may not be the phrase that comes to mind. But you might start feeling a little sorry for yourself. You might be thinking it's not fair. You might be thinking, how in the world do all these other people who eat, drink, and are merry, but never give a second thought to Jesus, how do they have what seems to be the whole world, and yet here I am and I'm struggling right now? How is that the case? But Christians who are with the Lord never question God's goodness. They never question it. And I'm just going to tell you, I am looking forward to the clarity of mind that comes with being in glory with Christ. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord with gladness. Enter His gates with thanksgiving, for the Lord is good. This is what the psalmist tells us to do. We are to sing, we are to dance, we are to serve, we are to be thankful. And why? Because the Lord is good. Folks, in the end, if we have not Christ, we have nothing. We have nothing. You can collect and pour out, you can collect and you can gather all the riches of the world and all the fame in the world, and if you have not Christ, you have nothing. There is nothing worth singing for. There is nothing worth dancing for. There is nothing to be thankful for if Christ is not risen and reigning. But what happens when making a joyful noise is just too difficult? In Afghanistan, right now, as we speak, house churches are going underground. Underground churches are going silent because warnings have been issued by terrorists. We know where you're at, we know what you're doing, and we're coming. Just recently, just recently, children born in Christian homes who had to have sort of like a birth certificate filled out were just now starting to put on that birth certificate, apparently, their information card, if you will, that they were Christian, that they identified as Christian, so that future generations would not have to hide from their faith. And all of that now has stopped because terrorists are going door to door. And I call them terrorists because that's what they're doing. They are terrorizing people. And not just believers, American sympathizers, 
allies. Over 12,000 Christians in Afghanistan, that war-torn country, are trying to discern whether or not they should try to escape or hunker down and try to ride out the storm. So I ask you, how do these Christians, with any type of sincerity, how do they make a joyful noise or serve the Lord with gladness? How do they do that? And as of today, if the numbers are accurate, 4.5 million people worldwide are now dead due to complications attributed, attributed to COVID or COVID-related illnesses. In the United States, nearly 640,000 deaths have now been recorded and are attributed to COVID or COVID-related illnesses. 7,700 of those are in Kentucky. And now the virus has hit very close to home, to our home, even our small congregation. How do we... Christians in Kentucky, in Frankfurt, enter his gates with thanksgiving in the midst of the worst pandemic of a lifetime. None of us were around in 1918 when the Spanish flu hit that shut down churches, that made people go underground, and that killed millions of people. So this is ours. How do we turn to Christ and still proclaim that God is good and that God is loving, and that God is still all-powerful where people are dying all around us. When we read passages like Psalm 100 or Psalm 34 or others, especially in the Psalms, it seems that they lack the nuance of real life and the pain that life brings, doesn't it? Like we read those and we, we immediately, it may come to mind, I get it, psalmist, but you don't know my life. You don't know what I'm going through. I just lost a child in Afghanistan. He was 22 years old. And he got blown to bits trying to help people to an airplane to escape. Psalmist, you don't know my life. I just lost my mother and my father to this disease, and I didn't even get to visit them in the hospital. They were left alone, except for maybe a nurse who is worn out and broken and has 15 other patients. Psalmist, you don't know my pain. We do not know exactly who wrote Psalm 100, but tradition has said that it's Moses, which should shed some light on whether or not he knows pain and knows suffering. Moses did know, and yet he still wrote, enter his gates with gladness and thanksgiving in your heart. How can we say that God is good? It has been said that evil or suffering is the great Achilles heel of Christianity. That that is the Achilles heel. Many atheists or at least agnostics will tell you the reason they are not bought into Christianity is because they can't, Christianity cannot explain evil 
while also saying God is good or God is all-powerful. Because what they'll say is this, and you've heard this, this is not new, is that if God is good and loving, then He cannot be all-powerful or children would not be dying violently across the world. Or the flip side, that if God is all-powerful, then He cannot be all-good and all-loving. Because there's no way a loving God would allow the horrible things that we see day in and day out. You've heard that, right? That's nothing new. Now this may surprise you, but I have to admit that from a humanistic perspective, that this is a good argument. From a humanistic perspective, this is a good critique. I see where they get it. They have a point, given certain conditions. Let me explain. Because the assumption that is being made by this above logic that I've mentioned is that God's primary aim, that His highest aim and focus in all creation is our good well-being, our health and our prosperity. See, the logic, that logic that I just talked about, that makes sense if the highest aim of God is that you are happy and prosperous and well-off. And if that's true, if that's His highest aim, then I would agree 100% with the atheist and that critique. That God can't be all-loving and all-powerful at the same time. Because it's evident that we are all not well off and we are all not prosperous all the time and we are all not living the good life, if you will, right? Now, please note that the, that the logic that we've mentioned puts happiness at the center of existence. Everything that God does is a means to an end that humans are happy and healthy. So just remember that. But now here's my favorite word, but. What if our happiness is not God's highest aim? What if that is not His primary goal, that you and I are ecstatically happy? That we are just carrying on like a happy camper, like a peach in the sun? We're always celebrating, skies are always blue. We're always dancing. And the only time we start coughing or sneezing is because we're laughing with joy too much. What if that is not God's highest aim? What if health and prosperity are not the primary markers of God's goodness and love? What if I told you that you being happy, healthy, and wealthy do not matter to God near as much as something else. As we have said countless times from this pulpit and from other places, you, your, and my happiness are not God's primary aim. According to Scripture, His primary aim is not our happiness. God's primary aim would be that He would be glorified. 
That is God's primary aim. If God receives, now hear me here, if God receives the greatest glory through your prosperity, health, and happiness, then that will be the outcome. Here's the thing. If you, okay, if you are healthy and wealthy and everything's coming up roses for you, then I will say this, then that aided and abetted God receiving the most glory. But, and here's another, I love that word, and here's the thing. If God receives, all right, if God receives the most glory from you suffering, enduring pain, then that's what's going to happen. I'm going to read a quote here in a little bit from Charles Spurgeon that I think will nail this point home. Because we don't like this at all. We do not like this at all. That concept that God is aiming for His glory above all else, whether it's for our health or if it's for our pain, that seems narcissistic to us. It seems selfish and it may even seem evil. Because if a human were to behave in this way, we would call him a sociopath. And the reason that the centrality of God's glory causes us so much consternation is because many of us live in an anthropocentric universe. What does that mean? It means that humans, namely ourselves, are the center of the universe. And so we struggle with the fact that God's highest aim is that He receives all the glory. Because the person at the center of the universe should receive all the glory. And if you picture yourself in the center of your own universe, why are we not getting all the glory? And so we struggle with this idea that God is stealing our glory when, in reality, we do not live in an an anthropocentric universe. We live in a theocentric universe where God is at the center. In fact, we live in a Christ-centric universe where Jesus is at the center of all things. And the truth is, God is not robbing us of glory. We have been robbing Him of His glory since the moment that we fell in the garden. We have to get our perspective right. Scripture tells us that we are not the center of all things. That God rules and reigns. We agree with this, right? We agree with this. We have to agree with this. Desiring God has collected numerous verses to this end to demonstrate that God is most concerned with His own glory. So I want to look at a few. Will you just read some scripture with me real quick? I'm going to recite these. Just read along. Okay? John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why did he blot out the transgressions? Not for you, not for me, for his own sake. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Romans 9.17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh was created to be condemned for the glory of God. That's why he was created. 
Isaiah 43, 6-7, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were not created for yourself. You were not created for your own pleasure, for your own happiness, for your own prosperity. You were created for the sole purpose of bringing glory to God, whether that be through your salvation or through your condemnation. That is why you were created. Exodus 14.4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Why were the chariots bombarded by waves and sent to the bottom of the sea for the glory of God? Why were the Israelites allowed to safe passage across the sea? It was not because the Israelites were these massively faithful individuals. It was for the glory of God. Why did God choose the Israelites? It was not because there was something wholly special about them. It was because He was going to get the most glory by choosing them. It is the centrality of God in the universe and the goodness of God that allows Paul to proclaim this in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. It's this truth, that truth that Paul just declared, a timeless truth that enables Job to testify through suffering. Remember Job? How he lost everything, everything. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has not taken away has taken and the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord and I love verse 22 in all of this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong Job realized that it was the Lord's to give and it was the Lord's to take away no one loves losing a loved one But they were the Lord's to give, and they were the Lord's to take away. We can say that God is good because by faith we believe what the Scripture promises. That God is working all things out for His glory and for the good of those who love Him. We may not understand His ways, but we always know His motives. Always. You may wonder at times, why does it feel like I'm getting the wrong end of the stick all the time? And you say, Lord, don't I pray to you enough? Don't I read the Bible enough? Don't I serve in the church enough? Don't I love you enough, Lord? And our first mistake is that we keep saying, I, I, I. Because the truth is that very well may be true. The Lord may be looking at you and say, yes, you do love me. You know me. You serve me. 
but this is for my glory. And ultimately, it is for my good, for your good. Remember what I said at the beginning of the message, that there is a group of individuals that never question the goodness of God. And those are Christians who have passed away, who are with the Lord right now. Because death is not the end. What at times seems as a conflict between these two principles, God's glory and our good, is most evident in the, loss of a loved one, in the loss of a loved one. Most of us have experienced this in one way or another in the past couple years. I, I bet you if we went around the room that almost every one of us would be able to say, yes, we've been impacted by death. Either through COVID or some long-term illness or something like that. We have felt the pain of loss. If we look at death from the perspective of the world, it is hard to believe that there is any good that comes from it. You know exactly what I mean. We even might ask, Lord, we don't want to question you, but we're going to question you. What good came from this? What good came from this? There's a family who just lost their 19-year-old son tragically. They might be, I don't know, and I don't want to speak for them. They might have asked, what good came from this? I'm sure some people did. One of the most beautiful things I've seen in the last few weeks is that family who lost that 19-year-old son pour out their faith on social media, because that's the content context we have. You see their grief, you see their sadness, you see that they're overwhelmed with it, but they are not despairing. And just yesterday, the mother posted a video of that son, not too long ago, where he was explaining the gospel. Simply, not with eloquence, but with sincerity. I want to take great care with what I'm about to say as we come to the conclusion in these last few points because I don't want it to come across as morbid or heartless because we should grieve the death of loved ones. We should grieve. Grief is biblical. Jesus grieved and the disciples grieved. However, when we view death, we almost always view it from the outside, folks, because we're not dead. We are always viewing it from the perspective of the congregation, right? Speaking as Christians, we are grieving the loss of our loved one, and we imagine that our loved one is grieving their situation as well. I believe that that's sometimes what is going on, is that we are grieving and that we imagine that our loved one, who is now deceased, is grieving the predicament as well. Folks, never, and I think I have the Bible's authority in, in saying this, and if I don't, you can correct me and I'll repent, but I think I do here. Never in the history of all creation has there ever been a believer who has died 
and come face to face with Jesus and wished that they could return back to their family. As much as they love you and care for you and served you faithfully, There is no place they'd rather be than in the arms of Christ. I believe I can speak for Tubby. I believe I can speak for Libby. That if you gave them a hundred opportunities to come back, they would choose Jesus every time. And that's what we got to keep in mind. I believe most of us understand this intellectually and theologically, but emotionally we struggle wrapping our minds around that. But it's just the truth. Paul expresses this thought in a similar fashion in Philippians 1, 21-24. Listen to what he says here. For to me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. And listen to this. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's his desire. To be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, I love it. If Paul had his way, if he had his way, he would not have gone through everything that he went through. He would have been in the arms of Christ at that very moment. Beam me up, Jesus. It's not really how it works, but you get the idea, okay? That's what Paul would have been declaring, but he says... But I have to remain with you. Why? For your account. I'm not done yet. Jesus is not done with me yet. If you are still here and you are still present with us, it's because God is not done with you yet. He still has a purpose for you. He still has a plan for you. Because I guarantee you, when that plan unfolds and He's done... You will then be done in this life. You will not stay here any longer than God means for you to stay here. Death is not the end. Death is a reality of the effects of sin, but Christ is the reward for the believer who has experienced God's goodness in salvation As Christians, we do not seek suffering, we don't seek after pain, but we don't chase after death. But as Christians, we are not paralyzed by suffering. Hear me there. We do not seek suffering, we do not seek pain, and we do not seek death. But we are not paralyzed by suffering, we are not paralyzed by pain, we are not paralyzed by death. We press on. We press on. No one likes pain. No one likes suffering. 
But for the Christian, we know and believe and have faith that our God is good and He has a plan for our suffering. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 100, through the pain and through the suffering, we make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. We serve the Lord with gladness. We come into His presence with singing. We know that the Lord, that He is God, because it is He who made us, and we are His, and we are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. That's what we declare even through the pain, even through the suffering. Because one day, if we know and are known by Jesus, we will enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. We will give thanks to Him and bless His name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Folks, the suffering will end. The pain will end. But His love will not. His love endures forever. Charles Spurgeon writes this as we close. I, the preacher of this hour, beg to bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, He has then been most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless Him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I am sure that in these things the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. Our Father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of His grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Out of the greatest suffering and pain have we experienced the greatest grace and mercy. And the love of God is revealed through that. Do not shy away from the pain and the suffering. Because if you miss the pain and the suffering, you may very well miss the love of God that is poured out on you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. God is good all the time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we love you. May your glory be revealed in and out of season, in pain, 
and in struggles, in times of prosperity, in seasons of suffering. May we not miss the love of God that is poured out on us. May we not neglect the blood of Christ that has covered us. May we repent and seek the face of Jesus. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.